Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, September 27th, 2015. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are truly our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this is Pastor Zach Zender. Last November, he set out to break the Guinness World Record for the longest speech. This 31-year-old pastor of the Cross Church in Mountain Dora, Florida, knew he needed to speak longer than 48 hours and 13, 31 minutes. He said, the idea was to break the Guinness World Records for the longest speech ever. And I'm a pastor, obviously, so I chose to speak on the Bible and, the kind, and kind of cover the entirety from the story of Genesis to Revelation. So he combined 45 sermons and preached them back to 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 back. He said he actually prepared 50 of them, but in the middle figured that he'd skip about five or so. Uh, My goal, he said, of the whole sermon was to talk about God's ridiculous commitment to his people. Even though we give up on him, he never gave up on us and kind of traced that theme throughout. I tried to keep that theme throughout the 50 sermons. Did I mention he also did this for charity? He raised over $100,000 for a nonprofit that does free uh, drug and alcohol rehab services for people. Any guesses on how long it took him to get those 45 sermons preached? Remember, it had to be more than 48 hours and 31 minutes. What do you think? (laughs) Once he hit 32 minutes, then he stopped, right? No? No? 53 hours and 18 minutes. 45 sermons, 53 hours. He started on a Friday, he finished on a Sunday. Well, I may not be in line for a Guinness World Record, but I'm in the middle of doing what Pastor Zach took two two plus days to do. I'm taking us through an overview of the entire Bible, highlighting the major themes that occur throughout Scripture. I'm calling it the Grand Sweep, Rediscovering the Bible. And uh, welcome to the second of this four-part series. Last week, we looked at the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. Today, yeah, we'll do the, the rest, the other 34 books that come into the Hebrew Scriptures. It ain't going to take me 53 hours, though, to do this. It will be slightly longer than my normal sermon, but not crazy long. Rusty read for us Psalm 1. Just a reminder, the first two verses say this. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. The Bible has long been known as one of the most important books that has ever been written, and many of us want to follow the words of this psalm and spend time meditating on God's law day and night. But the Bible is often seen as hard to understand or difficult to comprehend, and it frustrates both new believers and longtime Christians alike. The goal of this series is to kind of look at the big picture of the Bible, the major themes that flow throughout, so that when you sit down to meditate on God's law day and night, it won't be so overwhelming and intimidating and confusing for you. So last week we started in the beginning, we looked at God's hand through the first five books of the Bible, we are reminded that one of the the big overarching themes of Scripture is that it's a love story between God and us as humans. 
Despite our tendency to uh, fall short and rebel against God's love, God continues to woo us back and to bring us into relationship with him. When we left off last week, Moses had led the people uh, out of slavery in Egypt, and they were just on the verge of getting into the promised land. And once again, I'm grateful to J. Elworth Callis' book, A Hop, Skip, and Jump Through the Bible. Uh, Reverend Callis helped me distill much of what I wanted to say to you today. So grab your Bibles, strap on your seatbelts, because we are going to be flying through the scriptures this morning. And I encourage you to, if nothing else, just turn, at, we're going to go sequentially in order, right? So just start, we're going to pick up on the sixth book of the Bible, uh, Judges, or sorry, Joshua. Start with Joshua, and even if I don't have specific passages to read in each book, just kind of turn to the beginning of the next book as I move through them. It'll kind of help you get a sense of how we're moving through this. So we're going to begin today on the book of Joshua. And I have to ask the question, how do you succeed a legend, right? It kind of felt like I felt coming here in July, (laughs) filling in on Pastor Jim Powell's amazing 24-year legacy. What a gift this church has been given, right, by his, his leadership, by his shepherding, his love. An amazing foundation has been set. That's where Joshua feels as well. He had to replace Moses leading the people into the promised land. Joshua 1, verse 5 and 6. God says, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. So be strong and courageous, for you shall put this people in possession of the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. So God just reminds Joshua Be strong and courageous. Stay faithful to the commands that I gave to Moses. Just follow in the traditions that's been set before you. Now, remember last week, we talked about the spy expedition. When they were first close to the promised land, Moses sent 12 spies, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, to go in and see what the promised land was like. And 10 of them came back totally freaked out. We'll never do it. We can't make it. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, we can do this with God's help. Well, this time, now we're 40 years later, Joshua's leading the people in the promised land. He sends two spies. I wonder why he chose two. Two spies this time to go in. In chapter 2 of Joshua, we find their scouting story. It's an amazing story. The two spies end up hanging out inside the house of a prostitute named Rahab. Now, you know it's going to be a good story when it starts out there, right? Rahab, in her act of hiding them, becomes an honorary Israelite. And when the Israelites come back in and fight and battle against the city, they protect her and save her. Not only that, but Rahab eventually marries into the nation. She becomes, according to the Gospel of Matthew, one of Jesus' ancestors. How amazing is that? The rest of the book of Joshua deals with the military activities of a people coming into a new land, but there just happen to be other people already living there. I mean, that's, that's theme has gone throughout of history, right? One people coming in to take over a new place and trying to deal with what that means. Bloodshed, battles, fighting, diplomacy. This fledgling nation is trying to find their place in the world. Next is Judges. Very interesting book. I remember as a junior hire discovering the book of Judges. Oh, my goodness. There are some crazy stories that happen in Judges. Those who led Israel between Joshua and King Saul were known as the judges. They were part-time leaders whose basic role was to settle disputes, either within the nation or between their nation and other nations. 
Some of the more notable judges were Deborah, Gideon, and Samson. But the overarching theme of judges goes like this. The people of Israel are prospering. Life is going good. They forget about God. Then they start following after other things and fads and people and gods, and soon their enemies overtake them, and they live years of misery, and then they remember, oh, yeah, we forgot about God. And so they cry out to God for help. So God raises up a judge who then delivers them and redeems them, and they have prosperity, and things are going great until they forget about God, and then the enemies come in, and it goes over and over again. It's a pattern that we also have in our own lives, don't we? You know, life is going good, and then we hit a snag, and we get desperate, and so we have no other choice but to call out to God. And God, in his infinite mercy, brings us through, and we're grateful for redemption, and then we get on with life, and then we sometimes forget about what God has done, and then we hit another snag, and the circle goes around and around. Ruth, the next book, is probably known as one of the greatest love stories ever written. Ruth, chapter 1, the first two verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. Now, two disturbing items are mentioned in these first two verses. First, of course, would be the famine. Anytime famine hits, it's bad news. This prompts Elimelech and his family to leave the country. But the second disturbing piece of information is where they choose to go, Moab. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23, the Hebrew people are told never to welcome a Moabite into their fellowship. Never. Even to the 10th generation, don't let them in. So it's unthinkable that any Israelite in their right mind would actually choose Moab as the place for which to go. But that's where Elimelech and his family go. And after they live there for a decade, tragedy strikes. Elimelech dies in Moab, and to make matters worse, his two sons die as well. That leaves Naomi with her two Moabite daughters-in-law. Turns out the boys met a couple local girls, fell in love, got married, and now it's just the three women. Now, in biblical times such as these, a woman only had status in society according to the men in her life. So if she was married and had sons, that was the only way that she would be able to make her way. Now she has neither. All of the men folk have left the picture. So Ruth, one of the two daughters-in-law, pledges her unwavering loyalty to Naomi. And says she will go and leave her country and follow Naomi back home. Naomi has to go back to Bethlehem because no one is there to provide for her. She has no way to survive. She goes home and her daughter-in-law says, I will leave my people to become part of your people. Well, it's back home in Bethlehem that an unlikely romance develops between Ruth and a much older man named Boaz. Boab happens to be uh, sort of related to the family, and this relationship blossoms into true love. And at the end of the book, the child that is born to Ruth and Boaz, his name is Obed, he will become King David's grandfather. And King David became an ancestor of Jesus. So once again, the book of Ruth is reminding us that God has plans for people that we might deem outside of God's grace. Even the most hated Moabite neighbors have a place in the lineage of Jesus. It's one of the grand sweeps. God is always pushing our, our barriers, our boundaries of who we consider outside and inside of God's love. God always moves to the side of inclusivity. Next, 
we come to the books of First and Second Samuel. Samuel was one of those miracle babies who was born to parents when natural circumstances said that birth would be impossible. He was dedicated at a young age by his mother Hannah, and he served the aged priest Eli in the tabernacle of God. And it was here that as a boy, God spoke to Samuel, and then God continued to speak into his life as he grew up. In time, Samuel became a judge of Israel, and in many ways, he was the most notable judge in all of Israel's history because he also became their spiritual leader. But unfortunately, his sons did not follow in his faithfulness. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us, then, a king to govern us, like the other nations. Now, this may not seem like much of a big request, but for this people at this time, it was huge. We want to be like everyone else, they said. We want a king. But they weren't supposed to be like everyone else. They were set apart by God to be a holy people, a chosen nation. God was their king. So they were the original one nation under God. I mean, they lived with God as their ruler. So this request is really rejecting God's rule in their lives. Yeah, the whole God thing is good, but we really need a real king like everyone else. God gave them what they asked for. Saul was the first king of Israel. He was a young man of great promise. The Bible says he was tall, dark, and handsome. He had so much going for him. But power and the adulation that often comes with it is intoxicating. And through a series of events, Saul oversteps his bounds as a king, and God decides to move on to another king. Dr. Callis notes that there are few biblical characters who plummeted as dramatically and tragically as Saul does in the Old Testament. The new king, chosen by God, would be a young shepherd boy by the name of David. He wasn't made king right away. He was anointed and knew that at some time he would become the next king. David has, by far and away, more chapters written about him than any other character in all of the Old Testament. He was taken into the royal household by King Saul. He was a musician, an athlete, a warrior. He had the gift of charisma and friendship. Saul did not want to leave the throne. He did not go willingly. And the David saga is filled with intrigue, deception, excitement, passion, and danger. It's an amazing story that I commend to your reading sometime. Looking back, it was actually David's strengths that led to his downfall as a father, as a husband, and as a king. He reigned for 40 years and is seen by most as being Israel's greatest king. And despite his imperfection, David would become the measure of excellence for all future kings. Speaking of kings, I'd like to combine the next four books, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, because they tell basically the same story from just a couple of different perspectives. When David left the throne, he named his son Solomon to succeed him as king. This was quite controversial, uh, not only within the nation, but within his own family. Solomon was not David's firstborn. He was a son that was born later in life to his wife, Bathsheba. When David died, one of the pieces of unfinished business that he gave to his son was to build the Lord a temple. You know, prior to this, uh, the Ark of the Covenant had moved in tabernacle from tribe to tribe. 
and just rotate it around the nation. Well, David believed it was time to have a central location where all could come and worship and that, that his son should make that temple in Jerusalem. Well, Solomon began his reign wonderfully, and God appeared to him in a dream, almost like the genie from Aladdin, right? And said, ask me for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon asked for wisdom, for wisdom and discernment, and God gave it to him aplenty. The problem with Solomon, though, uh, what got him really into trouble was his love of women. That's been many people's downfall over history, right? But Solomon decided quite cleverly that the best way to maintain peace with his neighboring countries is to marry the daughters of their rulers, right? So if I'm marrying the daughter of this country, the the princess, they're less likely to come and attack me because their little baby girl is here in our country. So he did an exceptional job of this. 1 Kings chapter 11 says... Among Solomon's wives were 700 princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. It kind of just boggles the mind, doesn't it? 1,000 women to be in relationship with. Here's how this happened, the turning away his heart. All of these um, wives and concubines were political alliances. So each of them came with their own cultural and faith background and experiences, their own faith traditions, their own gods. Solomon never stopped worshiping the Lord, but as time passed, he would join his wives in worship as they were worshiping, and some of their practices kind of crept into his practices Sometimes we don't start out to be unfaithful, but we make unhealthy lifestyle choices that lead us down a path away from what God intends for our lives. Solomon's son was Rehoboam. He had barely gotten to the throne when Jeroboam, another very able ruler, came down from the north. He was sent to to lead this delegation from 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. Solomon had made life on the nation very difficult. He was building not only a temple, he was building also his own palace. He was raising heavy taxes upon the people. He needed workers around the nation to come and help build what he was making. And so Jeroboam comes down with a delegation to say, hey, um, can we renegotiate the relationship between the people and the king? Because your dad was major. Rehoboam says, give me three days. And so he confers with his father's advisors and gets their uh, insight. They say, yeah, you should probably change things a little bit and it'll, it'll work out better. And then he asks his own buddies, his advisors of his generation. And they say, no, man, show them who's boss. Don't let them have a little bit of a way. You need to be the king, be the man. And so he sides with his advisors, his younger generations. He says, if you thought my dad was hard, you ain't seen nothing yet. It does not go over well. From that day forward, the nation of Israel splits in two. The ten tribes in the north chose to be their own nation, and we, we've known them as the nation of Israel, while the two southern tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, became known as the tribe of Judah. 
Now, a majority of the tribe of Levi also lived in the south. They were the priests and the worship leaders. And since they were down there by the temple in Jerusalem, that's where many of them resided. Well, the splitting of the kingdom was a major turning point in the history of the Hebrew people. And it was not a good one. Much of the history that follows is rather bleak, especially for the ten tribes in the north. Judah in the south has its good periods. They have some some really good kings, King Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Uzziah, Hezekiah, and Josiah. But scripture does not record one single king in the north who followed the Lord. Not a single king. The ethics, morality, and spirituality of the northern kings were extremely wanting. Elijah and Elisha were prophets to the ten northern tribes. Unfortunately, the people never returned to the Lord under their leadership and ministry. But through it all, they remained faithful to their call. And there's some wonderful stories about how God was using Elijah and Elisha. The next major event in the life of the Hebrew people occurred in 722 B.C., when the Assyrians, who were the dominant uh, military power in the area, defeated the northern tribes of Israel. They came in, they took away the best and the brightest of the people and resettled them amongst their own territories. That was common practice in that day. The biblical writers of these books will tell you that this happened because the people had sinned against the Lord and God allowed the Assyrians to come in and take over. So the Assyrians took Israelites from the north, settled them into the land of Samaria, also took other conquered peoples and moved them into the land of Samaria as well. And so over time, the exiled Hebrews in Samaria did what Solomon did. They, they met other people, they intermarried, other people bring other religious traditions, and soon their faith and lifestyle had incorporated things that took them a little bit away from their tradition. These people would come to be known as the Samaritans, at least by the time we get to the New Testament. And that's why the people in the south, the Hebrew people in the south, had a hard time with the Samaritans. They were their own flesh and blood at one point, but they had allowed their faith to be intermingled and corrupted by other religions. Well, the people in the southern kingdom of Judah also managed to survive for about a hundred years after the Assyrians came in and took over the north. But eventually, the Babylonians, who were the superpower du jour, uh, captured Jerusalem, right about 600 B.C., Again, biblical historians will tell you that the Jews in the south had, like their northern counterparts, sinned so greatly that God allowed the Babylonians to come in. And once again, the best and the brightest were carried away. This time, though, not to Samaria. They took them away to Babylon, which is present-day Iraq, leaving only the poorest of the poor back in Judah. And it was during this time of transition in Judah that the prophet Jeremiah was called to speak a word of God to them. They didn't want to hear it. And we'll get to Jeremiah when we get to his book in a few minutes. The book of Esther is set in the period of time when the people of Judah are in Babylonian captivity. And the basic plot is a familiar one in Israel's history. An enemy of the Jewish people, this time a man named Haman, sought to destroy the Jews. But through some amazing turns of events, he himself ends up being done in by the very plot that he started. The book is unique in that the name of God is never mentioned in the entire book of Esther. And yet, as believers, we can see God's hand moving behind the scenes in chapter after chapter. By the time we get to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the ten northern tribes of Israel are lost to history following their conquest by the Assyrians. 
The marvel, of course, is that the same thing did not happen to the people of the southern kingdom of Judah once they were conquered by the Babylonians. Scholars think there were three reasons why we still heard from them and not the tribes in the north. First, with the temple in Jerusalem, Judah had been more spiritually nourished. They had been grounded. So when they wandered away, when they came to their senses, they had something to go back to. They had that solid foundation, which is why it's so important for us to have that foundation in our lives or to provide that for our children and our grandchildren. So when they wander away, because all of us wander at one time or another, they will know where to come back to. They will have that foundation like the people of Judah had. Second, the people also had uh, the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was a prophet in captivity in Babylon. So he's in there with them through all of this, and he's encouraging them and challenging them to remain faithful. Third, Judah had the literature of their faith. Much of the books that we see as making up the Old Testament came out of the southern tribes. And they had two great leaders, Ezra and Nehemiah, for whom these two books are named. Never underestimate the power of having a good leader. So when the Babylonians finally let the Hebrews return to their homeland, Ezra and Nehemiah were the ones who guided this rebuilding process. They started by rebuilding the walls of the city, and then they, start, and then they moved to rebuilding the temple. And they called the people back to faithfulness and challenged them not to become entangled with the people of other religious backgrounds. Don't intermarry. Now, for us today in this multicultural society, it seems a very harsh word. Why would God not want us to intermarry? But for them, it was strictly about religious ideas. And that had led them away. For that period of time, they needed to be focused on their own faith traditions. It was during this period of Ezra and Nehemiah that the Hebrew people started reading Scripture again. It had gotten lost for centuries. They went back to reading the holy words of their fathers and mothers. They started as once, as Dr. Collis puts it, to be people of the book once again. Now, let's take a step back for just a moment. In order for a plot to get anywhere... There has to be some reflecting on life's purpose and meaning. So when David became king, for the first time in Israel's history, they had secure borders. So not all of the men had to go to be soldiers and warriors to keep fighting. They could keep peace with a much smaller group. So then that allowed some people to do other things, to start writing the history of their nation, to to be creative in the arts, poetry and philosophies. The books that we're going to get to next are called Wisdom Literature, and most of them were written in more of a poetic than prose form. The book of Job talks about a man who was blameless and upright, who loved God with all of his heart, and then an astonishing series of disasters hit, and he's left with virtually nothing. His sons, his daughters, his extensive wealth, his health, even his standing in community are all taken away from him. And this book deals with the question that's been around from the beginning, right? Why why do good things happen to bad people? Why does God allow good people to, to suffer and struggle? Now, the popular answer at that time was bad things happen to good people because people do bad things. If you're sick, if you lose your job, if someone dies, obviously God is punishing you for some sin in your life. But with Job, that was not the case. 
by the end of the book of Job, though God doesn't answer the question why bad things happen to good people, except to say that God is God, and God is in control, and we may not understand it, and sometimes things just happen. You can't explain it. But nevertheless, God is there with us throughout it all. The book of Psalms is the longest book in the Bible. It's uh, 150 chapters. Some quick facts about Psalms. The shortest chapter in all the Bible is found in Psalms, Psalm 117. And the longest chapter in all the Bible is found in Psalm, Psalm 119. It's popularly known as the Psalms of David, though David was only given credit for 73 out of the 150 Psalms that were written. The Psalms are the prayer book of the Jewish people. Scholars and casual observers, though, have noted that we Christians have baptized the Psalter into Christ, meaning that when we read the Psalms, we see them pointing to Jesus. New Testament writers often quoted from the Psalms, even Jesus hanging on the cross. Remember when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. Generations of believers have found this remarkable book not only captures their faith better than almost any other, but it also expresses their despairs, their longings, their hopelessness, and their hope. Next, we come to the book of Proverbs. This is a collection of down-to-earth wisdom on a variety of topics. They're not always set out by category. It's just kind of thrown out there and see where things stick. It's like you're hanging out with your grandparents, and they're giving you pearls of wisdom. That's what you find in Proverbs. Ecclesiastes, the next book, is a collection of philosophical uh, reflections from a person that had everything and yet felt like having everything means almost nothing. The writer was frustrated that the same fate comes to both the righteous and the wicked, and he can't find justice anywhere in the universe. You ever heard that before? In the end, he says, it all comes down to this. Fear God and keep his commandments. Funny, isn't that the same thing God told Moses and Joshua and so many others? Love the Lord with all that you have and follow the commands that have been passed down from generation to generation. The Song of Solomon, that's a love song. It's a book about two people so wonderfully in love with their feelings recorded by a master poet. Rabbinical scholars often interpret this book as a mirror of God's love for the people of Israel. Christian scholars say it's, it's a mirror of God's love for the church. But neither thought should distract us from the very beautiful, candid, and actually quite erotic expression of human love that are found in these pages. Now, we've looked at prophets or poets, priests and kings. Now, to finish our, our Old Testament uh, query, we turn our attention to the prophets. Dr. Callis remarks that the work of the prophets was twofold. Sometimes... They had to correct the present so they would preach. Sometimes they had to lift up the future so they would predict. Preaching and predicting. Most of the biblical kings, even when they're at their very worst, were at least spiritual enough to seek out the prophets for help in times of trouble. The prophets' stock and trade was a word from the Lord. And they would offer it freely. When you asked and even when you didn't ask, they would bring a word from the Lord. We humans sometimes need to be told that we're wrong. And other times we need to be embraced and encouraged. And the prophets did both. 
Isaiah is the first of the major prophets. The major prophets are the ones who have the longest uh, books. He was the first of the major prophets to be quoted in the New Testament. The angels, when they were announcing the birth of Jesus, were quoting from Isaiah, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace and goodwill. Isaiah 9, verse 6, describes the coming ruler as a prince of peace, and we Christians see that as being Jesus. Isaiah chapters 52 and 53 speak about the suffering servant. This comes up over and over again during Holy Week as we get ready for Easter. New Testament writers referred to these two passages ten times in their interpretation of the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus' first sermon recorded comes from the book of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the oppressed. Jeremiah's call came when he was young, when he was a youth. That's when God called him to be a prophet. He had the unenviable task of having to announce judgment to his own people, that we are about to be overthrown by the Babylonians. Not only that, but he said, oh, and by the way, God doesn't want us to fight back. Can you imagine? The North Koreans or the Russians or whoever, right? Uh, ISIS would come to attack the United States and our spiritual leaders say, don't fight back. This is all part of God's will. It did not go over well in Judah. Jeremiah had a rough life and ministry in the South. Nobody wanted to hear what he had to say to them. But even in the midst of this foreboding ministry, he also spoke words of hope and encouragement. Specifically in chapter 31, where God promises to write his law on the hearts of the people. I see this as like a, a, a precursor for the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. He's saying no longer do you have to go to church or temple. You don't have to listen to a rabbi to teach you. My spirit will be with you. I will fill you with my words of life. Lamentations is a book that appears to have been written around the time of the Babylonian invasion of, of Judah and the destruction of the temple. The pages of the short book are filled with profound sorrow. Yet, in the end, the writer writes, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What a powerful song to sing in the midst of turmoil and struggle and natural, national disaster. Ezekiel was the spiritual leader of the Hebrew people in Babylonian captivity. He was there in Babylon with them. An amazing prophet. His key vision is recorded in chapter 37. It's the vision of the valley of dry bones. He sees this, this, this open plain area, and there's just human bones scattered around. And God said, can these bones live again? And he was asking him about the people. Is the, are the people so cut off? I mean, they're in captivity, right? They feel that their life, their history, all of their tradition is over and done with. And, Jer- and Ezekiel says, only you know. And he begins to craft a vision of how I will begin to put these people back together, bone by bone. My spirit will fill them with life. They will return to their homes and live again. And the last nine chapters of Ezekiel speak of that vision when the people will come back to Israel, come back to the land of their foreparents, and live and grow in peace and grace. Daniel is a book that combines the prophetic visions of Daniel with the stories of he and his young friends. It's also set in Babylonian captivity. 
and the heroic miracle stories of Daniel and company, the lion's den, the fiery furnace, they were meant to encourage and inspire Jews living in exile. God is still with you. There still is hope. You can do amazing things. Hosea, in a very dramatic way, portrays the love of God for his people in a marriage relationship. He says, Hosea, I want you to get married, and the bride of your future is a prostitute. Go and love her. So he goes and marries her, and of course, because of her tradition, she strays many times. And we find as he, as God tells him to bring her back, woo her back, forgive her, restore her, it's a story of our relationship with God and God's faithful love and our infidelity and how God gives us second and third and fourth and as many chances as we need to come home. It's another uh, one of the grand sweeps throughout the Bible of God's faithfulness and our infidelity and God's grace. The main passage of Joel, or the message of Joel, is centered around this locust invasion And the prophet sees the tragedy that's affecting his land as God's judgment. But there's never only judgment without hope. Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. One of the themes you see throughout the scriptures is that whether or not God causes something to happen to our lives... Anything that happens can be an occasion for us to turn back to God. Amos was a resident in Judah in the south, but he was called by God to speak a word to the people in the north. Can you imagine how that goes over? That's like someone from down below coming up to tell us in the Antelope Valley how we should be living, right? I mean, I've only been here three months, but I know that would not fly for people here, right? Be like, yeah, 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 that may work for down there, but not up here. We are different. That's what Amos had to do. Amos called the people away from their sinful practices and back to what God desired most. Amos 5 says, I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It doesn't matter the traditions you have, says Amos, if you're not reaching out to love others the way God intended, then it's all meaningless. Obadiah deals with the Edomites. The Edomites were descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. They were like cousins to Israel. And when the Babylonians came in and uh, attacked the south, some of the Jews fled to the land of Edom. And Edom did not house them safely. They're like, here they are, here they are, and gave them back over to the Babylonians. So Obadiah's message was, now it's payback time. God's going to get back on you for turning our people over when they asked for safety. Jonah is perhaps one of the most well-known of the minor prophets. He learned from inside the belly of a fish that God loves even the most wicked people. That's right. There is hope for everyone. And God desires all to come to repentance. Micah had a powerful message of God's justice for people. Something that was solely lacking at the time. Probably one of the most famous passages in the minor prophets... Micah 6, 8. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Nahum is dated by scholars around the fall of Nineveh. Nineveh was the city that uh, Jonah was supposed to go and preach against. Nahum rejoices rejoices that finally the Assyrians are getting what was coming to them. 
Because of all the pain they inflicted on others, now they're falling. Ha, ha, ha. Good for you. Right? But at the same time, he also warns his own people, this can happen to us if we don't practice righteousness and live the way God intends. Habakkuk is is grieved by the wickedness of his people in the south. He feels they should be brought to judgment, and then God tells him, oh yeah, I'm going to use the Babylonian people to bring them to judgment. Zephaniah was writing around the time of King Josiah. King Josiah was one of the greatest of the kings that came after David. Yet, Zephaniah predicts a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, because the people continue to sin against the Lord. Haggai and Zechariah deal with the same issue. After the Jews have returned from captivity in Babylon and begun rebuilding the nation, things were going great in the early days of the building project, and then, well, time kind of passed... And you know how it goes, right? When you have a building plan and time kind of passes on and you, don't, you lose some of the passion and the vision and, and you feel kind of, well, I don't really know. Where are we with this whole building project? Well, Haggai tells them to redouble their efforts on the temple. And Zechariah gives them some exotic visions of the people and nation restored, including seeing children and the elderly living safely in Jerusalem once again. I love the passage that talks about that you can sit under your own tree in your yard and no one will attack you. And finally, we get to the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi means my messenger and was probably written around the time of the Persian Babylonian invasions. Its ending seems a perfect transition to the New Testament because it predicts a return of the prophet Elijah. One of the great prophets from scriptures is going to come back, and we see that fulfilled in the very next pages of the New Testament through John the Baptist. So, if you're still awake, congratulations. Oh, my goodness. I want to encourage you to continue also in scripture journaling. Last week, I introduced it to you. Uh, This is reading the Bible devotionally. In your bulletins today is another uh, SOAP page, S-O-A-P. If you weren't here last week or you didn't get a chance to do it, this is a new week, new opportunities. When you have 30 minutes, on the back of your bulletin, you'll see three different scriptures. Pick one of those three, take out this paper, open your Bible, read the passage, just look for one insight. Something that's interesting to you, that's surprising, that's challenging. The first part of soap is scripture. So you just write that scripture down, that that verse or that word, the phrase, whatever it is. The O then is observation. What's happening in the story? You don't have to understand the whole story. Just what do you think is happening here around this time? The powerful part is the application part. How does this connect to your life? What, where might there be a word for you in this passage, in this verse that you're lifting up? And then finally, the the final part is prayer. Finish by just writing a short prayer back to God. It's that simple. And this has been, for me, the single most important spiritual discipline in my adult life. And I found this seven years into being a pastor. But it's changed the way I related to God. So, thank you for your willingness to hang with me on this exceptionally lengthy, for me, sermon And you'll see that what we covered today is very important in understanding the grand sweep. Because we were shown that there's a people chosen and set apart, given love and guidance and grace from above. They somehow 
managed to turn away from God over and over and over again. And so God sent prophets and priests and kings to try to bring them back. Some were more effective than others. But by the time we get to the Old Testament, nothing has worked. The people are still separated. They feel separated from God. God has spent centuries trying to woo his people back to him. And now God decides to try something new. A new tact. And that's where we're going to start next week with Jesus. So, I hope you'll be back here to join us in this journey as we continue the grand sweep. Amen. As the band comes uh, forward, thank you. Great stories, lots to be uh, learned from Scripture. And, but really, this sermon, as I said last week, is not about you knowing more about the Bible. It's about giving you the tools by which you can go and encounter God's Word for your life each day you have a chance to do that. Let us uh, rise as we join our hearts and our voices in song.